turn to lesson 27 in your book. It's kind of crazy that we're here already. And then we're actually going to be a little all over the place this morning. Um, you can go ahead and turn to John 12, but we're actually going to be in all three of the other Gospels this morning, too. Um, lesson 27, you can go ahead and turn to... John 12, if you would like to have a starting spot. So we're kind of, again, working through the last week, basically, of Christ's life at this point. Again, it's kind of crazy. Again, basically half of the Gospel of John is essentially his last week, a lot of it his last day. Um, and again, you, just, you don't see that in the other Gospels just for the different purposes that they had in writing and everything. Um, but again, that's more, part of the reason why John's Gospel is just unique in everything here. So again, if good to keep in mind and that reference, that handout that I'd given a couple weeks ago on just kind of the timeline of the last week of Christ and everything, just to kind of help put events and things in place. Um, so what did we talk about last week? Talked about his meeting, and who were those people? Christ's meeting with the Greeks. And when they came to, well, who did they come to, actually? Requested. It's Philip, yep. And he went to who? Andrew. Which again, it's just, just kind of interesting. You see those two, kind of, you see those two again, um, again here, but then you also back at the feeding of the 5,000, the same thing there. But um, so we're basically, at this point, we basically looked at Monday, essentially, in, um, in Christ's last week there. Triumphal entry would be Sunday. Again, so we looked at Monday was kind of that event that was talked about there. He actually, there's something else he did that day, if anybody can recall. John doesn't really record this. The other Gospels do. This is when you cleanse the temple for the second time. would have happened on that day as well. Um, so again, that would have uh, made quite of interest in Christ, for sure, for those who hadn't seen him before. So now, that was basically kind of the events of Nisan 11, or that Monday there. So again, he basically cursed the fig tree, if you remember that. That kind of, he saw that. Nothing but leaves. He would drive the money changers from the temple, the Greeks' request to see Jesus. He also gave some very important message there about his crucifixion and then the people's response and everything to that. What was their kind of people's general response when he talked about the son of man must be lifted up and everything? Like, who is this son of man? We've heard that out of the law that Christ shall abide forever. And then, again, they didn't really understand what he was saying. So now we're getting to the next day. So following those events, you can see it in Mark's gospel, Mark 11, Jesus would go out of Jerusalem to spend the night. doesn't exactly say where he spent. He could have gone back to Bethany, um, or he might have just stayed on the Mount of Olives. It seems like he often did that, that he often spent the night on the Mount of Olives there. Um, Nonetheless, now we're on Tuesday morning at this point, and he's back on the road to Jerusalem at this point, and it's going to be only one day before his betrayal and arrest. Turn this on here. Kind of already talked about some of it here, but yeah, again, Monday, 
things that he happened there. Curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple. Tuesday, we're going to talk a lot about these here. Jesus, as you saw from the title here, is a big, top, big topic for today and what happened on Tuesday. Now, John recorded only one event that occurred on this Tuesday, and that was actually the last event of the day, which is the supper in Bethany. Remember, we kind of skipped that. The other, like John 12, then 2 through 8, kind of because it's not, John doesn't necessarily place it in chronological order. So that is actually the only event that John occurs that happened on Tuesday. So to go see, find the other things that happened is what we're going to reference, the other three Gospels that talk about this. The Tuesday that this lesson deals with has been called the Day of Controversy. It marks the sharpest confrontation yet between Christ and the Pharisees, as we'll see here. They were becoming very increasingly concerned about his growing popularity, his boldness in casting the money changers out again for the second time, and his power in just healing the blind and the lame here. You see, they're continually meeting in attempts to decide how to get a legal way to get rid of him. You see that here. Gaining a guilty verdict against him and then get rid of him. They were getting increasingly tired of him. They wanted him dead before the Passover on Thursday. So it's Tuesday now, so they got to do something. But it's interesting, again, putting all that down, Christ knew what he was going to face on this Tuesday. But he didn't hesitate to come back to Jerusalem early that morning. And it's interesting, we won't read it for time's sake, on the way, so this is Tuesday again, the disciples were amazed to see the fig tree that Christ had cursed the day before dried up that event here. We won't talk about it for time's sake, but of course then they used that opportunity to teach them some lessons on faith and prayer. And he promised them even more power if they would believe it. So now he's back in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, and the Pharisees are going to come and interrupt him at various times with four test questions that they've come up with here. And in, and in their mind, if he failed to answer any of them correctly, they had him. They'd have grounds to arrest him, to get him condemned, and to crucify him. So we're going to look at these four questions here. First one Go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. This is the first one. Again, this is kind of the day after he's cast the money changers out of the temple again. So someone wants to volunteer to read Matthew 21, 23 to 27. Anybody? Okay, Andy. 21, 23-27. <clears throat> and when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching and said, By what authority doest, these things, uh, doest thou these things? And who gave thee this, this authority? Jesus answered and said unto them, I, will also, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I, and likewise, will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, whence was it? From heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say, From heaven, he will say unto us, Why did you not then believe him? But if we shall say, Of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. 
And they answered Jesus and said, We cannot tell. And he said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. So the first question, where do you get your authority from? And no, instead of answering their question, Jesus just answers their question with a question. Like, okay, I'll ask you a question. You answer mine, I'll answer yours. Of course, they're probably thinking, sure, of course. Of course, it was this, where John. Where did John get his? Where did John get his authority? Basically, is his question. Where did it come from? Was it of men, or is it from heaven? Is it from God? And they were trapped. They knew it. But you see him kind of. They get the question, and they kind of like huddle back together to decide how in the world they're going to answer this. Because again, they're again like so often Jesus is teaching calmly and ever and. Uh, Peacefully, and the Pharisees just come and interrupt them all the time. This is another example of that. And so, how they're going to answer it? No. And of course, if they're like, if we say it was from heaven, he's going to ask, well, why didn't you believe him then? But if they answered it, well, of men, then everybody's going to like stone us because everybody considers John a prophet on that. So they just simply said, well, we can't say. We can't tell. So then Jesus just simply replies, well, and he wouldn't answer their question if they could not answer his. It's interesting. Can you imagine, no doubt, everybody else laughed? You think of the crowd. And how it says the Pharisees must have turned beet red from anger and disappointment and public embarrassment from this. But they come back again. Turn over to Luke 20. Again, this is all, this is all kind of seems to occur in the morning here of the same day. This is all kind of kind of back to back. Luke chapter twenty is the next one here. Luke chapter twenty, and then verses nineteen to twenty-six. Now, someone volunteer to read those. Anybody? Good job. Nineteen to twenty-six. The chief priests and the scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on, and they feared the people. For they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. And they watched him, and sent forth spies, which should feign themselves just men, should feign themselves just men, that they might take hold of his words, so that they might deliver him unto the power and the authority of the governor. And they asked him, saying, Master, we know that thou sayest and teachest rightly, neither acceptest thou the person of any. But teach us the way of God truly? Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But he perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny uh, whose image and superscription hath it. They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. If you notice in verse 19, he talked about, it's not to lay hands on him, because, for they perceive that he spoke in this parable against them. That's actually something that Jesus said in between the first question and then this one here. That's actually the parable of, we talk about the man that planted a vineyard, let it out the husbandmen. And then he sent a servant to him, and they beat him, sent another one, they killed him, they stoned him, and then he said he sent his son, and they killed him. And that's where, and they 
sought to take him, for they perceived that he said this parable against them. Then this question here, and it's actually interesting, in another one of the Gospels, I don't remember which one, it actually says it's some of the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians that are actually with him, which is actually, those two groups are actually enemies, actually. Herodians, Herod, very against the Pharisees and that. It's just Christ divided people, but he united his enemies, put it that way. But they're there this time. So they basically had no sent, they basically send people spies here to kind of just so it's not appears to no, it's not the pharisees asking this question you know it's just normal everyday people you no know, common people asking these questions to christ here so they are posing as part of the people they of course they flatter him first by what they say you know, they're basically saying no master we know that what you're saying and teaching is right you no know, but teach us the way of god on this thing is it lawful or unlawful for us to pay taxes to caesar of course, Jesus knew immediately who they were and what they were trying to do. And he also knew, because of course he knew if he should say that they shouldn't pay taxes, then they could accuse him of treason and take him right to Pilate and get rid of him. But if he said, yes, that you should, shouldn't, everybody hated Rome, right? The common people around him who wanted to be freed from Roman bondage and, of course, the burden of their taxes and everything there. And it's interesting, the, the statement that it makes here, ever using common things to illustrate and drive home spiritual truths, he asked for a penny. Jesus did that so much. He used common, everyday things that people could understand to teach spiritual lessons. So he asked for a penny here. And he looks at it, holds it up. Whose picture's on it, essentially? Caesar's. Duh. Everybody knows that. Then, of course, he explained to them their responsibility towards Caesar in material matters and to God in spiritual concerns. Once more, they're left empty, having failed to trap him. It says they marveled at his answer because they couldn't say anything with it. He was right on both ways. Nobody could accuse him of anything on that. So that's two. You'd think they might have learned a lesson by now. Three. We're actually staying in Luke here. Someone want to volunteer to read verses 27 to 38? Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they asked him, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, If any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife, and died without children. And the second took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children, and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he calleth the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, 
For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. So question number three, Christ and the resurrection. Of course, who is it that's asking this question? Is that, is there someone ironic about that? It's interesting, it's the Sadducees, not the Pharisees who are asking this question. They didn't even believe in it. But again, they thought their question was so brilliant and that it wouldn't not only trap him, but would also defend their position that there's no resurrection. Think about it. But of course, he handled it perfectly. It's like he could have easily ignored such a stupid question, you know, on it. It's interesting. It's, the, it's probably this type of stuff that's exactly you know, what the Apostle Paul talked about, you know, avoiding foolish questions and genealogies and all this kind of stuff that he talks about in his um, um, in Gospels and stuff. Foolish questions without any profit. But anyway, Jesus has a lesson he's going to teach him here. To whom will be a person be married after death is essentially what they're asking here. And it's interesting that life beyond the grave, and just given some lessons, isn't like we do now. It's not the same. For one thing, there's no marriage in that, is what he says. Furthermore, there is a resurrection. And it's interesting, I, I hadn't really noticed this before, but of what, what he says and everything here in um, verse 37, now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush. It's like, Moses was essentially talking about the resurrection when he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So what's, what's ironic about that? All three of those guys are dead. All three of those guys were dead when Moses said that. But the Lord's the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. For he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. That was really interesting. I never noticed that before. But Moses even talked about it with that because then he asked him if God's the God of dead people obviously not certainly not then Abraham Isaac and Jacob must still be living because he's not the God of the dead but the God of the living and of course floored him again this last one's kind of a little interesting if you go back over to Mark Mark 12 It's interesting. Mark 12. And someone want to volunteer to read verse 28 to 34? Anybody? Go ahead. Mark 12, 28 to 34. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said unto him, O Master, thou hast said the truth, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the, under all the understanding, and with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask him any question. You see, it's one of the scribes coming here. Matthew talks, calls him a lawyer, and 
it says in that sense, it has him in the sense of asking him, tempting him, asking this question. But he gets asked, um, asked this question, basically, what's the greatest commandment? And since it's, it's interesting here, there was a question that was often discussed, you know, in the school of the rabbis, and you can imagine, just know how Judaism is, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And this person says this, this one says this, this one says this. Now here, you know, some said that the commandment relating to the Sabbath was the most important. You know, others that highest value on the laws relating to sacrifices. No, think about you, what would you have answered? And this, obviously, you know the answer. So again, but the Lord, again, meets the test, stating it, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And then the second one, to love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's in another passage, it talks about on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Those two, you could divide every single one into one of those two categories. So if you follow that, you did it on that. And it's interesting, the reaction to this one, it seems that the person asking this question, it's interesting, as Jesus said, um, verse 34, when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, it obviously had an effect on this person asking the question because he realized, yeah, this is true. And it's like, yeah, that's right what you're saying. And Jesus said, thou art not far from the kingdom of God. It's interesting. But then it says, what's the reaction? What's the result of all this? No more questions. <laughs> no man dared ask him any more questions. They couldn't argue with him. Four questions, they had him. Four times, they came up empty. So now, Jesus goes on the offensive. Jesus takes the initiative here. After having backed them into a corner by his very adroit answers to their four questions, Jesus then gives him a question of his own. If you look at um, verse 35, And Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How say the scribes that Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Ghost, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore himself calleth him Lord, and whence is, he, whence is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. You see other gospels, but they couldn't answer. So they asked them, how can the Messiah be David's son when David calls him Lord? And again, they were confounded this time. They couldn't answer. And it says they didn't dare ask him another question after that. And it's interesting, Mark says here that says the common people heard him gladly. It's like the common people were probably laughing inwardly at the ignorance of their so-called well-educated leaders. This. So Jesus, actually, it's not talked about here, but Matthew really talks about it. But he will completely rout them by launching into a very scathing denunciation of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, I believe. It, his entire chapter is his message against the Pharisees that Jesus gives at this point. He calls them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, whited sepulchers, murderers, serpents, and a generation of vipers. He accuses them of pride, egotism, laziness, sending souls to hell, straining at a gnat while swallowing a camel, inward filthiness, and for murdering the prophets. As a very bold denunciation of the most respected leaders of Judaism, also proving that Christ was no sissy. Again, he's one man standing here 
with all his enemies around about him, you know? He knew the hatred that was in their hearts. And before he died, he was bound to reveal that to the common people for what they were. Again, Matthew 23 is that message that he gives. Matthew records that there. Again, so much for political correctness. And that. So after this, so his mission accomplished, Jesus then leaves the temple. Again, the Pharisees had to be boiling hot mad with things. You know, as Christ and his disciples leave, the disciples ask him you know, about the rebuilding of the temple. You know, Jesus talked about that it would be destroyed. And they wanted to know when. And then Jesus would give um, the Olivet Discourse, I think is what it's called. Um, he would cross, of course, go out of the city, cross the Kidron Valley, go up to the Mount of Olives, gaze out over the city, and then he would give a sermon, Matthew 24, some other, I think, Mark 13 here. Events about the last days. Again, we won't talk about that just for um, time's sake. So he would be over here looking back to it, looking back to the city when he delivers that sermon there. So again, this is still all Tuesday. So now, by this point, it's evening, and Jesus is obviously very tired and hungry. And so arriving in Bethany, he'd find a meal prepared for him in honor at the house of Simon, says a leper, probably whom Jesus had healed. It's interesting. Was there a contradiction? It says Martha was the one serving, but it says it was in Simon's house. Maybe Simon was their dad. Doesn't say. Or it could have been they were invited. It's pretty easy to come up with some impossible explanations on that. So Jesus says a leper whom Jesus probably had healed. So it's after 6, by Jewish calculations, it's actually the next day. It's actually Wednesday for the Jews, but still Tuesday for our perspective. And you think about that, that would be Jesus' last day before he'd face the cross. But the supper in Bethany here. There's some lessons that we can look at here. There's actually in your book, I think it's on page 208, there's actually kind of this um, diagram up there, kind of a diagram of a kind of a first century um, Jewish house and everything there. Well, actually, we'll get to, um, yeah, it talks about, I think that one's actually, that diagram right there is actually back on um, 198, but it just talks about some different areas there. This is what I wanted to get to. There, um, this is similar probably what the upper room would have been like too. At this time, this is how guests would have been seated for a meal. If you look on page 208, um, it says, By the first century AD, most of the people under Roman rule had adopted the custom of reclining during meals. This arrangement was called a triclinium. Flat couches would be arranged on three sides of a low table. Servants would place the meal on the table from the side that was not flanked by a couch, and this side was also nearest the door. And guests at the banquet lay on their sides, leaning on their left elbow. They ate with their right hand, which would be considered the clean hand in Eastern culture. This would have also been the, like, the customary arrangement both for the meal at which Mary washed Jesus' feet and then also for the Passover meal at the Last Supper. Again, very foreign to our uh, Western mindset in that. And uh, reclining while you eat, but thank the Romans for that. 
So again, the frames that these um, couches were placed on were often made of costly wood, been highly ornamented. Um, the beds would be stuffed with straw, hay leaves, seaweed, or luxurious swan down. It's kind of interesting. Cushions or pillows would also be placed there so that you could you know, recline on it while you ate so that your right hand would remain free to, to get food. They were made, again, so that the side facing the table was higher than the side where your feet would be. So your feet would be lower than your head. It says, therefore, the woman of John 12 could easily anoint Jesus' um, head and then go down to the triclinium on the backside to his feet. So again, this is where John talks about this back in John 12. So if, if you're not there already, turn to John 12. This is, we kind of had skipped over this a week or so ago just to get back to it here. John 12, verses 2 to 8. Anybody want to volunteer to read those? John 12, 2 through 8. Good. <clears throat> there they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and had the bag, and bear what was put therein. Then said Jesus, Let her alone. Against the day of my burying hath she kept this. For the poor always she had with you, but me you have not always. So again, as they're all eating here, Mary would anoint Christ's feet with some very costly ointment. It's interesting, the fact that she would wash you know, his or any other guest's feet was not what was unusual here. Um, it was actually a very courteous thing for a host or a hostess to do for his or her guests. It's interesting. This isn't the first time Jesus has had something like this happen to him. You see that in Luke when he was actually earlier in his ministry dining at the house of one of the Pharisees. A woman would come in and um, do the same thing. And that's for Jesus to say, you didn't, you, know, you didn't wash my feet when I came in. He came in talking to the Pharisee there. So it's not an unusual thing that was happening, but... What was unusual was what it was. So, of course, when they had to walk, of course, as you all know, no sandals, get your feet very dirt, dusty, that kind of thing. Very courteous to do. But for Mary to use such costly ointment for that purpose was a gift for a king, fit for a king. It was an expression of the highest love, love that doesn't count the cost of its expression. It says, according to Davis's Dictionary of the Bible, spikenard was a fragrant plant, especially its roots, that grew in the 11,000 to 17,000 foot elevations of the Himalaya Mountains, which is kind of interesting. So the difficulty in obtaining it, the distance involved in getting it all the way to Palestine, and the process of transforming it from a root to a liquid made it a very expensive ointment. And Mary just di didn't put just enough of the ointment on Jesus' feet to clean and perfume she drenched it so that so much that one she had to dry it with a towel and two the odor filled the entire house see that if the other gospel accounts talk about again 
they it seems to identify multiple disciples here, which you can imagine that. But John specifically identifies Judas as the one talking in this case. Now Judas is indignant. He thought it was a great waste of resources and complained that the ointment could have been sold for the equivalent of a year's wage. So if you just say $50,000, that puts that in a little bit more perspective. And the proceeds given to the poor. But Jesus, of course, rebukes him here, let her alone. And because he knew that Judas's concern wasn't for the poor, he was a thief and wanted the money for himself. The, um, I've always kind of wondered, you no, know, anybody else has, do you ever wonder, you no, know, what prompted Judas to go to the Pharisees and, you no, know, betray him? You know, like, I don't know if anybody else has ever wondered that, but I've wondered that too. It's interesting. John doesn't talk about it, but the other Gospels talk that it was right after this event is where Judas went. So Matthew and Mark both add that Judas was stung by the rebuke and went directly from the supper to bargain with the chief priests concerning Christ. It's really interesting. Note particularly as well, at this point, how much value Mary placed on Christ compared to the price for which Judas later betrayed Christ for. The price of a common slave. Judas was by this point apparently convinced Christ is not going to become king. Now, he knew the Pharisees wanted him dead. The opinion polls seemed to be swinging to the opposite extreme, and because he was an opportunist, he was willing to switch sides and turn against Christ. Christ had publicly embarrassed him in this situation here, because again, it's in front of the other disciples, in front of everybody else there as he's determined to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which in Exodus 21:32 was the cost of a slave. Think about that, $50,000 compared to 30 pieces of silver. But let's consider the actions of each of the three major players in this situation, Mary, Judas, and Jesus. So for Mary, you see the act of one who truly loves the Lord. <clears throat> Mary unselfishly lavished a costly bottle of perfume on the Lord here. And again, in this act, you can see the heart of all those who truly love Christ. The last thing on their minds is the sacrifices they make in serving him. Because to them, he's worth all the sacrifices they could ever make. Christ is worth more than all the wealth, all the fame, all the relationships, all the um, importance or anything else that this world has to offer. Is that the value that you place on Christ? That's a hard question to look in the mirror and answer for yourself. So you see, the act of one who truly loves the Lord, how about the attitude of one who pretends to love the Lord. Judas, like a lot of people today, pretend to be a disciple of the Lord. But he actually loved himself. And like Judas, the love that some people profess for the Lord is only because of their desire 
for the selfish gain they can derive from following him, from following Christ. As the disciples' treasurer, Judas had been stealing money all along, apparently, from their funds. And if Christ did become king, Judas had a good chance to get a high position, you know, maybe secretary of the treasury. On the other hand, if public opinion swung against him, he was ready to go to the other side, which is what he did here. A lot of people have the same attitude. Christ is their ticket to better business, you know. Gives them a certain amount of prestige. Might even give them a better political image. Probably a lot in our, world, in our country, unfortunately, in that particular case. They're more than willing to pray to God if that prayer is based on God's promise to enlarge their borders, you know. But like Judas, they're playing Christian only what they can get. And when it begins to cost, they'll desert him in a flash. It's interesting. Again, this is kind of geared specifically toward like high school students and everything here. It gives some examples on that. But when they're with people who scorn and mock the Lord, they're ready to sell them out. Are you ready to sell them out for a song? And they accuse those who love the Lord of being ignorant and stupid. What a waste is that actually Matthew records those exact words that, of what was said here. It said, to what purpose is this waste? Talking about Mary's sacrifice here. And they criticize people who honestly love the Lord and want to serve and glorify him. And that's precisely what Judas did in condemning Mary's anointing of Christ's feet here. And then you see Christ in this whole situation. <clears throat> now Jesus' answer to Judas's condemnation proved that he knew Judas's heart. He knew that he was selfish, and he knew he was just a pretender. He knew that all along. You can see that. Jesus knew him all along. And God also knows our hearts. He knows your hearts. So the question, though, are you for real? Or are you like Judas, a pretender? God knows. That's the scary thing. God knows already on that. So let's get to some questions here. We've got we to hurry for time's sake. <clears throat> Page 199 there. So this is on question number one. So why would Jesus answer the religious leader's question with another question rather than simply answering it directly? obviously knew that the motivations for their question weren't sincere with it, obviously. So what do, their, what do the leader's private discussion and final answer show about the strength of their convictions? Again, this is question number one about, get you back here. Question number one about his authority. So what did their private discussion and then their final answer show about the strength of their convictions? Because if they honestly answered that question, what would they say? The baptism of John, obviously because they didn't believe him. That was their true answer. So what does their discussion about it and then their answer show about the strength of their convictions? They gave a very politically correct answer, didn't they? They didn't answer it. 
they based their answer on what they thought would be the effect of their answer, not what they really believed. So now on to question two on Christ and taxes. How is their, again, private plotting different from their public conversation with him? Because how do they come to him first? Because they come to him, they come to him as common people. What do they say first? Do they launch right into their question, or do they they flatter him? So how is that different from their private conversations about him? In private, they're plotting his arrest, and in public, they're flattering him. So what do you think Luke means when he says they marveled at or were amazed by his answer? What do you think he means when he's talking when he says that? Never thought of that. <laughs> Question three. Christ and the resurrection. Why do you think everyone was too intimidated to ask more questions of Jesus after this incident? Actually, technically, this is question four. This is actually question four. Why do you think everyone was too intimidated to ask more questions of Jesus after this incident? <clears throat> Three strikes and a foul ball. No, uh, you think about this. Four fouls and they struck out. <laughs> so did Jesus do something to scare them or did they have another reason? Perhaps they realized that he knew the answers to all our questions and that attempts to trap them were useless. And it's like, might as well try and save some face and quit. Well, we're... Laughing at him. Again, this is in public. They interrupted Jesus' teaching to mess him, try and mess with him about these questions. So now this is about John 12. So if you were an observer, when Mary anointed Jesus' feet, who would you have sided with? Judas or Mary? And imagine you don't know about verse 6 about Judas. So basically, you're an observer there. Probably, honestly, more Judas, right? I what do you think motivated Mary to sacrifice an item worth a year's wages? I think that's actually talking about previous situation, I think, in this case. Potentially, what had just happened the chapter before this? She obviously had it, most likely. Perhaps saving it for something. Again, obviously, she thought he was worthy of it. <laughs> and again, so then the last question, how is your life motive characterized by that motivation? The, um, 
the intro lesson in your book, we didn't, I wanted to read it, but we didn't have time. I encourage you to read it. It kind of talks about, gives a very good analogies and lesson about that on is Christ worth it, basically. So I encourage you to read it, but we don't have time to do that right now. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for um, these lessons here. And again, just the challenge that it's been to me personally, and I trust that it's been to others as well. And then in this lesson here, again, of course, we see your conflicts with the Pharisees and how you answer them perfectly. Again, that those who hate you will never triumph over you and that you are in control of the situation the whole time. And then we see back in the Supper at Bethany and just the contrast between Mary and Judas. And let it help us to let us be like Mary in the sacrifice that we give because you're worthy of it. And you're worth more than that. And please help us to live for you with that mindset and not, again, to be like Judas and that none of us would be a phony. <laughs> I think we look so good, even the other disciples had no clue on it. But again, it's because you know our hearts <laughs> and you know that and Again, about Judas you knew, and even as we'll see further along in the lessons, Lord, that you still offer Judas opportunities and chance to get right and to not do what he was planning. And you still kept it private and still hid it from other people because you love them. But help us to be like Mary and to sacrifice, give you what you deserve, which is our everything, as you talk in Romans 12. No, our body is a living sacrifice. And I pray for the service to come. That you just be with Pastor as he opens your word. Um, just be, help us be able to be attentive, be able to stay awake, be able to stay focused, and that it would just, your spirit would be working in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.